hope everybody had a, at least a decent week. Uh, I know some of us have had a long, very long and drunk out week, but we can still find something good in even the difficult weeks. Get my stuff together here. This week uh, we'll be uh, talking on something I titled Fishers of Men, but it's actually more about one of my favorite topics of being discipleship. Uh, something that I realized very very strongly as a teenager, especially uh, when I was about 16 or 17, growing up in a, a Baptist church, and uh, a lot of people have heard me say this before, but what I was, I was looking around and I realized as a faith group, we had done a phenomenal job of presenting the gospel to people, getting people to the cross. As long as I could remember growing up, that's all we ever really focused about was getting people to the cross. But it dawned on me, we've made it to the cross, what then? What's the rest of the Christian walk look like? If Are we supposed to stay here at the cross and don't go any farther? Are we supposed to kind of go farther along into our faith and and I, I was praying about that, and I, and I was asking the Lord. I remember I was uh, 17 years old. I was asking the Lord, I said, I've made it to the cross, but, but what now? Where, where does growth come? Because I also have the mindset of if you're not moving, then you're staying and you're becoming stagnant. And stagnant water also becomes lukewarm water. And then in reading in Revelations, the Lord said, if you're lukewarm, he's going to vomit you out because he doesn't like that. I was like, what now? So one of the first things that came to came to mind uh, after praying that, and it, it probably took a couple of months, was this being called to fish, which is my first point. No matter what we do in the body, each of us are called to be fishers of men in some form or fashion. And I'll be starting out with uh, Mark 1, verse 16 through 18 which is uh, something that has uh, always stood out to me uh, with dealing with obedience. But starting in verse 16, it says, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, throwing a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Last part of that passage is something that always stood out to me because they didn't ask him what, they didn't say, who are you? They probably had a decent idea because they're from the community. But they dropped their nets and they followed him immediately. And the rest of their life is now our history. And on the contrary, Jonah was told to move and told to do something, and he ran away from it. He's called to preach repentance in Nineveh, but he didn't immediately drop everything and follow. He ran, just like I've been guilty of running in the past. But in due time, the Lord still drastically pointed him back in the right direction. I don't think you have much of a choice if you've been swallowed by a fish and taken exactly where you're supposed to be. Thankfully, 
that didn't happen with me. <laughs> but I can still relate to that. But you don't have to be a well-trained scholar to fish for men. All we have to do is say yes, Lord, and then talk to the ones around us. Just like Simon and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. All we have to do is say yes. As individuals, we're able to say more about the kingdom and how we live our life and how we work at our jobs and how we serve others than through any fine speech that we can give. And all throughout the Bible, we find more action and calls to action than we do of teaching and debate. And we can teach great philosophies and speak amazing words and have great speeches. But as both Paul and James said, without action, without the action of love, what good is it? So that raises my original question. What do we do after we get to the cross? We've good job of being fishers of men, but what do we do afterwards? So point, number, point number two is uh, to make disciples. And before I get into that, uh, I'm going to give a little bit of food for thought with uh, the Christian walk. Can anybody tell, looking at your life, that you're a Christian? And I've said this many times, if Christianity became illegal in this country, is there enough evidence that somebody can convict you of that crime? That's something that came to mind uh, probably five years ago. And it's been heavily on my heart and on my mind for ever since. Because to me, that's a very good check place internally for checking my own life. If I were to be convicted of being a Christian, is there enough evidence in the court of law to hold up to it? And there's places right now where it is illegal. And where... Things such as being publicly baptized is a potential death sentence because it's all the evidence they need. Well, let me get back to this. Part of why I look at the Christian people from around the world, especially in the countries where it's illegal, is to me... When it's illegal, that's when your faith is really real. If you're willing to stand up and publicly declare that Jesus is my Lord and I am His, that's real because here in America we don't have to worry about that. We can say that and, oh, okay, good for you. No, over in parts of the Middle East, China, and even parts of South America, to be publicly baptized is... A big thing. Like I said, living in the country that we live in, it can serve as a disadvantage of how real faith is to us and how being a child of God is worth dying for. And naturally, we would all say, and even Peter said this, Jesus' own face, is my faith worth dying for? Peter said the same thing to Jesus, and not only did he deny him three times, but he did it forcefully a couple of those times. 
And Peter, the rock that the church was built on, missed the mark, and yet was still the man God built the church on. So I also want to tell everybody, don't be afraid of failure. You have only truly failed when you've given up and prematurely stopped running the race. So we know that we're called to be fishers of men and to make disciples. And Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells us the very next step. A little bit of background on that. Jesus had just spent some time with the, the disciples after uh, resurrecting. And he was given a couple final instructions before he was ascending into heaven on what the disciples are to be doing. And I'll be sharing a little bit more of his instructions later on. But starting in uh, verse 19 of chapter 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This past week, I was actually listening to uh, one of my favorite uh, radio pastors, uh, Alistair Begg, and he was actually doing a two-part series on on baptism and the uh, importance of it. And he's looking at it throughout church history and from different uh, viewpoints. Uh, I believe the uh, Presbyterian, the uh, Episcopalian and the Roman Catholic, he was kind of comparing and contrasting the three together. But it was it was a big deal, and still is a big deal, all throughout the world, all throughout the New Testament, and even today, because that's one of the biggest debates within the Christian community is baptism. But unanimously, it's been agreed upon throughout all Christian theology that baptism is important. It's a big deal, much like the wedding band that I wear on my hand and the ceremony of my wedding being an outward and public declaration of the word to all the world to see that I'm declaring that I belong to that woman back there and her to me. That ceremony of baptism is declaring to the world that I've taken a vow and I'm declaring that I'm now in covenant and in union with God. I am now his and belong to no other but him. Jesus also seals our hearts through baptizing us in his Holy Spirit. In Mark 1 8, John the Baptist, who uh, actually, on a funny note, when I was Caden's age, I actually thought he was the founder of the Baptist denomination. That's just a little side note there. But John the Baptist even told the crowd, and he even recognized this. But he told the crowd that he was baptizing, that he was baptizing them with water. And the one that he was speaking of would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. We also see this in uh, John one thirty three, as John the Baptist explains who sent him. He says, I do not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, One whom you see the Spirit descending on and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So uh, next we'll be going to Acts chapter 1. 
So Jesus also said the same thing about the baptism and to the disciples just before his departure into heaven. Along right after he was telling them to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that he'd be with them. He was also giving them the other final instructions that we find in the first chapter of Acts. And he was telling them to, to, hold put, to stay put once he left and to wait till the Holy Spirit came on them before they started going into ministry and making disciples. Because they had the head knowledge and they had a passion and drive, but they love, they lacked the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They lacked the tools that they needed. So, Acts 1, starting in verse 4. It says, Being assembled with them, he commanded them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, of which you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times nor the dates which the Father has fixed in his own authority. That you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And for the rest of the chapter, in uh, chapter 1, we see the disciples coming together, trying to find a replacement for Judas, and, and praying about who the replacement was supposed to be. He came down to two candidates. So they weren't just sitting there idly and doing nothing, twiddling their thumbs while waiting on the Holy Spirit to fall. They were at least trying to be productive. Then in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on them and created quite the impression on the very smart and well-organized religious folks in the synagogues and in the area. And while many folks had heard the gospel in their own native language, a lot of the religious folks thought the disciples were drunk off their tails and made fun of them. And uh, part of the interesting thing about uh, leading into uh, chapter 2 is that was kind of a, uh, a religious hotspot that people were traveling from all around the world, Jewish people, and and some that were... Jewish by faith and not by blood were also coming by and as pilgrims to uh, kind of like nowadays just to see the Holy Land and just to give their uh, their uh, offerings and their tithes and and their uh, sin offerings too for their whole family. So there was people from all over the world in different languages all right there in the community. So I'm going to be starting in uh, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a mighty rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as fire, being distributed and resting on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, side note, this, was, this obviously was 
very loud and very noticeable sound, which is why the neighbors heard and naturally came to see what was going on. Now dwelling in Jerusalem were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were confounded because each man had heard them speaking in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to each other, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of them in our own native language? And every time I read that, I, I don't know why, but I think of like a group of international tourists coming through Statesville saying, and aren't they all these people from the sticks of North Carolina? How are they speaking French to me so well? And I don't know. I don't know why, but that, that just comes to mind every time I read that. Because that's basically what they're saying. Aren't these from the small little fishing town in Galilee up north? Anyways, back to uh, back to the word. The Parthians. Medes and Amalites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya near Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, or those are the people that worship are still Jewish by faith but not by blood, Cretans and Arabs, and here and we hear them speaking in our own language the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, What does this mean? While others mockingly said, These men are full of new wine. And sadly, we see the same thing kind of happening in the Christian community when something that doesn't fit the traditional norm or script is happening. Of... These people are crazy. They're acting drunk. They might be drunk. But I love Peter's response as we move into verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and listen to my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m., so basically, Peter's telling the crowd that, no, they're not drunk. It's too early in the morning for them to be drunk. But in verse 16, he gets into the meat and potatoes of what is happening here. And part of the promise of our current Christian walk right now and where we're at in the world. So starting in, uh, let's say, 16, yes. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall turn into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now today I'm not going to go into great detail of all the many signs and wonders that 
he was speaking of right there from the prophet Joel. And we can find a good detail of them being laid out in the book of Revelation and towards the uh, end of the book of Joel. But while we're still in the book of Acts, you can flip over to Acts 19, I'll be over there in a minute. All throughout the New Testament, we find the topics of repentance, discipleship, and baptism going hand in hand. It was a big deal then, and it's a big deal now. And not to try and oversimplify everything, but that is three of the most biggest topics of the Christian walk. We reach repentance, and we ask to be saved. We get baptized, and we have to be discipled. And unfortunately, we're good at the repentance and the baptisms, but sometimes the discipleship can be hard because everybody's so busy and they don't have time or they're scared that they don't know enough or they're not going to be able to do enough. And I'd love to I'd love to brag on y'all, especially Elaine and Carolyn the other week with Stacy here and y'all were teaching her how to knit. That's a that's a part of discipleship. That's doing life together. Teaching each other, brothers and sisters, how to do something that might help them with their stress, might help them with their job, might help them with their walk. That's a all a part of discipleship. It's growing together. It's being a community together. It reminds me of something that I read the other day that got my mind is very, very thought-provoking. And uh, honestly, I thought this pastor was about to go into uh, some heresy here. But this pastor said, and it really shocked a lot of people at his church, but this pastor said that the church that is the assembly of believers, is not for the lost. Although the lost are always welcome and need to be invited, the actual purpose of the church is to train up and equip disciples through the reading and exhortation of the Word of God. Disciples on outreach and daily, active daily living sold out for God is for the lost in order to bring them in to make disciples. And this right here, this is what we've been doing. This is why we're here today. For the equipping of God's Word and His work into our daily lives. And that was just some food for thought that I wanted to share. Because to me, it, it adds credibility to the community and the assembling of people together. I said, for... Decades, the church has been great of let's invite people in, let's get people in, let's get people in. But we're at a point now where we can get people in, but they're trying to find what is next. Now that I'm here, what is next? Because just getting people in the door is not what's going to heal that broken heart of sexual assault in their past. That's not going to heal somebody from their addictions. Even the hidden ones. That's not going to heal a marriage that has been attacked by the enemy for 20 years. Where you have a couple that has stuck together just for the kids. Now that the kids are out of the house, they're like, who are you and what are we doing now? Being in a community and discipleship does. 
And I really think that's a part of why a lot of the American church does not look very much different than the same people down there at the bar and the in the other places that I'm not going to share at the moment. But it's it's sad and it breaks my heart. And I know it breaks the Lord's heart because it goes also goes back to the lukewarm. It's on Sunday. They're showing to be on fire. On Monday, they're cussing people out on the way to work and then talking about one of their co-workers because she's pretty. And that's not what we're called to do. Instead of having a brother that works with him that says, Dude, you're married. Knock it off. Watch yourself. Get right with the Lord. Oh, they got buddies that are right there with them. And that's not what we're supposed to be doing as believers. Let me get back on track and go back to Acts 19. <laughs> I'll be starting in verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and said to them, You have received the Holy Spirit since you believed. Or have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people that they should believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. Now, as I've said before, not everyone that gets baptized in the Holy Spirit starts rattling off with tongues. But it is good to note that something noticeable does happen, and a changed life is always the truest fruit of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And true discipleship calls us to walk the walk. Being filled with the Holy Spirit helps us walk that walk. Because we'll be walking and a thought will come up that we can take captive. and Or we might say something or do something and feel in our hearts here like, Man, you don't do that again. I feel that all the time. I don't know about anybody else, but... I feel that all the time. I'm like, Lord, forgive me. And it's something that's culturally acceptable. I could do it all day long, and nobody would mind. But obviously, the Lord's like, don't do that, man. And when I really stop and think about it, I can kind of see how the path will go down to where it can be destructive, no matter how simple it is. So point number three is walk the walk. The second chunk in the New Testament is what we call the epistles or the letters. So we have the Gospels and we have the epistles. And even the book of Revelation be, can be argued as a call to walk the walk when Jesus is calling out the seven churches and telling them what they're really good at and what they really suck at, except for one church that sucked at everything. But one of the biggest ways that we can walk the walk was actually given to us by Jesus in John thirteen thirty four through 35. And it's a verse that uh, I'm very glad that my youth pastor made us memorize growing up. Because uh, 
Teenagers definitely need it, but I think adults need it more than teenagers, if I'm to be honest. Because sometimes adults suck at it worse than kids. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I'm sure everybody in here has heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words. And and the word love is an action word. We show the world that we are disciples through how we love and through our love. A lot of the actions that we do, we can filter through the lens of love, of whether or not it's good for us to do. Because love doesn't cheat clients in business, and it doesn't gossip or slander about others behind their backs, or even to their face for that matter, because that's not very loving either. But love does feed the hungry, gives drink to the thirsty, clothes the naked. Love kindly corrects the wayward sons, speaks life into the brokenhearted, and lends a hand to the weak. And I've also said many times, we can love somebody and not like them, or we can love them and not fully agree with them, which is kind of counter to our current culture, because now we're in a culture that if you don't agree with somebody, you don't agree with their political point of view or their lifestyle, you don't love them. Just because you don't agree with them. And that channel of communication with people has been completely severed because if I don't agree with you, I just need to cancel you. I don't need to associate with you. I don't need to talk with you. You are an evil person because you disagree with me. Which is not what we're supposed to be. That is exactly what the enemy wants us to do is not communicate. Because people that communicate can come together and can be strong. And if you can't communicate, you can't be strong because you have nobody else to be strong with you. And it can be applied to every single relationship in our life. From a marriage, from the family, from friendship, from co-workers, from people we've never even met, but they live in the same community. A community that communicates well with each other, stands strong with each other, rallies around each other when things are going wrong. And I think we saw, even though it was very sad and heartbreaking, but I think we really saw that as a nation over 20 years ago with 9-11 because everybody became an American then. Didn't matter what you looked like or what your background looked like. If you had an American flag, you was an American. And everybody came together. And now we're kind of back to community cliques and are you like this? Or are you like that? Do you like Trump or Biden? I'll run. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The president's only in control so much, so quit cussing people over the president. <laughs> but Jesus himself encountered a lot of sinners that he expressed love to. And that doesn't mean that he loved or condoned what they did in their lifestyle or how they were currently living. But he did love on them and tell them to repent because telling someone that what they're doing is going to lead to death, that is actually love. And There's a way to do it where it's not very loving, but just the act of saying, hey, you keep living like that, it's going to kill you. 
tell it to my partner all the time. I keep telling us, dude, if you keep working 200 hours in a pay period, you're going to die an early death. He's 23, so he's gun ho and he thinks he's got it, but it's starting to wear down on him. And if we're to walk the walk, then we must also be willing to call a sin a sin. But we also have to call it such and not try to verbally damn and kill a person to hell. And sometimes that's easier said than done. But you can do it without telling them, like, boy, if you don't quit smoking, you're going to hell. No. No. But, hey, man, you need to lay off on that. You know you got a you got a family history of cancer. You're getting into your 40s here. It's about to start re- creeping up on you. That's loving. That's telling somebody, hey, you're doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing. And it's not good for you. It's just a gentle reminder on that. And the last passage that I want to cover is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4. And I feel like Paul's letter to Ephesus covers walking the walk in a nutshell. Along with not relying on solely our own logic and intellect through this life. And I'll be starting in uh, verse 17. It says, Therefore, this I say, and testify in the Lord, that from now on you walk not as Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, excluded from the life of God through ignorance that is within them, and due, due to the hardness of their hearts. Being callous, they have given themselves over to sensualities, and to the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn about Christ in this manner. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off your former way of life and into the old nature, which is the corrupt accord which is corrupt according to the deceitful lies, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new nature, which was created according to God in the righteousness and true holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let every man speak truthfully with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give place to the devil. Let him who steals steal no more. Instead, let him labor, working with his hands things which are good, that may he may have something to share with him who is in need. And let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up, that it may give grace to the listeners. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, in whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, outbursts, and blasphemies, with all malice, be taken away from you, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ also forgave you. There's so much that could be said on discipleship and reaching others for Christ. That's also why discipleship is an ongoing and never-ending process and journey in life. But I will sum up everything by saying, being fishers of men and discipleship go hand in hand. You cannot do one without inadvertently doing the other. Because if we're truly seeking after the Lord and being discipled by a mentor, 
and discipling others, then we're also trying to find more people to disciple. And people see us being discipled and discipling others. So naturally they come and engage in conversation, engage in life with each other. So you can't have one without the other. You don't have to actively be, I'm going to go out here and walk down Broad Street. I'm going to fish every man I can find. But you can go sit out on Broad Street. There's plenty of tables with a friend and chat and talk about life and let somebody overhear you talking about God and the Holy Spirit and what he's done in your life. That is something that we can do, and it doesn't take much effort. We can live life that's righteous. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for thank you for your word, Father. I thank you for this message. I just pray that it it's more than just for me, Father, because I know know a lot of things that you say I need to hear as much as anybody else, Father. I just thank you for this opportunity, Father. Pray that your word would just be well planted in our hearts, Father, and that it would flourish and grow in a mighty way, Father, that throughout this week, your songs of worship and your your words of your word, Father, would just come to mind in everything, every situation, Father, whether it's good or bad, that your word would come to mind and that we'd be able to speak it out, Father. In your precious holy name, amen.